welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast. It's been a minute. I've been on vacation, but I'm back and about to hit the road. So on the 3rd of August, I will be addressing the La Mesa Foothills Democratic Club about technology and interoperability and monopoly. That's down in San Diego, but it's all over Zoom. I will be doing it from my office here in Los Angeles. You can join. You don't have to be in San Diego to join as well. I will also be at DEF CON 30 presenting with a couple of great pen testers slash MDs about information security, interoperability, patient rights, user rights, and medical implants and medical tech. And then September 21st through 24th, I'm going to be in New York for Unfinished Live. That's an Aspen Institute event, and I'm going to be presenting on every day. There's lots more to come. I have this new book coming out called Choke Point Capitalism. And I'm doing all kinds of travel with it. It's just not yet public, but I'll be in Ottawa, I'll be in DC, I'll be in London, I'll be in Miami, maybe Dublin. I'm going to be doing events with Kim Stanley Robinson. I'm going to be doing public events, private events, events at conferences, all kinds of things. I'm going to be on the road all autumn. And speaking of being on the road, yesterday, which was Saturday, the 30th of July, I did an event. I was down at Midsummer Scream. That's a great big horror show. Basically, think Comic-Con, but for people who are really into Halloween. It's down in Long Beach. It's about 30 miles from my door here in Burbank. And the nice folks from Dark Delicacies, my great local horror store, invited me to come down and read Posey the Monster Slayer in the Pumpkin Patch, which was the kids' area. Posey the Monster Slayer, for those of you who don't know, was the picture book that came out during the pandemic. It's a book about a little girl who repurposes her toys to make them into field-expedient monster hunting weapons. And while she's uh, hunting monsters in her bedroom, she keeps waking up her parents, who slowly turn into zombies. And zombies are the only monster she can't defeat, but all they want to do is tuck her in. It's a book about, you know, the joy of monsters and also the joy of being a maker and tearing things apart and putting them back together again. And it's full of little in-jokes about parenting from my own parenting experiences with my daughter when she was small. And because that book came out during the pandemic and the lockdown, I was never able to present it to an audience of kids. So yesterday I was able to present it to an audience of kids and it was really great. I was down at that event alone, and I am home alone today. My wife and daughter went down to San Diego to go to the zoo and go to the safari park. So I'm having an alone kind of day. But in the meantime, I'm doing all kinds of stuff and getting ready to entertain. We've got company coming tonight, and I'm going to be making smoked porterhouses and charred grilled cabbage with uh, chili Thai sauce. And then tomorrow we have company coming around and I'm going to be making tri-tip and uh, roast asparagus and then butter and rum basted barbecued pineapple for dessert. So all of these came out of the Serious Eats cookbook, which I got for Christmas a couple of years ago and has really become my Bible for entertaining. When I got back from Puerto Rico last weekend, I did another event remotely. I did a talk for 2600's Hope Conference in New York, their closing keynote. And unfortunately, that is not available online right now. If any of you work for Google, maybe you could look into it because YouTube took down the entire live stream over an unspecified complaint about material in the, I guess, 10 hours of video that they had uploaded. So that's not good. And I figure some of you might be Googlers listening. And if you are, maybe you could rattle some cages down at YouTube about the Hope 2022 live stream being taken down for non-specified reasons. I, as you heard, and as you know, if you're a regular listener, I was in Puerto Rico on vacation for two weeks. This is my first podcast since coming back. I had such a wonderful time in Puerto Rico, and I reviewed a book 
about Puerto Rico that I read while I was down there. I went into the great labyrinth bookstore in old San Juan while I was down there. It's a mostly Spanish, but partly English language bookstore and picked up this book by Nelson Dennis called War Against All Puerto Ricans. That's a history of the failed 1950 Puerto Rican independence revolution. And I wrote a review of it this week on Pluralistic. If you haven't read the book, and if you're interested at all in America's colonial history, or indeed the upcoming referendum in Puerto Rico about whether to declare independence or become a state, I really strongly recommend this book. It is a remarkable read. So the other thing I've been doing since I got back, apart from seeing my family off and going to this event in Long Beach and doing this talk in New York, has been upgrading my laptop. So some of you will recall that I reviewed the Framework laptop about a year ago when I got it. Framework is a remarkable new kind of laptop that is user-maintainable. So it comes with a screwdriver and all the parts are designed to be easily swapped in and out. I got the very first run, which had a couple of little production problems. So I got to experience firsthand how easy it was to do things like swap out the hinges and put new hinges in my laptop. And I actually screwed up one of those repairs badly enough that I broke the cable for my monitor. So I just replaced the display on my laptop. I also got some food on the keyboard and was too busy to like pick it up and, and get some canned air and blow it out. And so I smooshed it in and now my keyboard's toast. And so I'm about to replace the keyboard that's arriving this week. And they've just announced their first CPU upgrade to the new 12th generation Intel CPUs. So I've got a whole new motherboard coming this week. So I will have this week alone swapped out the screen, the keyboard, board and the motherboard on this computer, as well as the back panel, which they have a new CNC milled version. So it's becoming a little bit like the ship of Theseus, but it's also performing as advertised. This is what they said I could do, that if I was dumb and made mistakes and broke my laptop, that rather than throwing it out or having to mail it to someone else to get it fixed and doing without for weeks, I could just have the parts sent to me in the mail and even someone as fumble-fingered as me could fix it and maintain it, which notwithstanding threading that monitor cable the wrong way around the hinge and wearing it out over the course of six or seven months, I have managed to do and continue to manage to do. That I've got the new blazing fast CPU arriving this week and I'm installing it myself. And I've looked at the instructions for the install. It looks like it's about a seven to 10 minute job to do a full motherboard swap on this machine. It's wild. It is really wild. If you're looking for a new laptop, I strongly recommend the framework. That is an unsolicited recommendation. I run Ubuntu, which is a flavor of Linux on it. It's the only thing I use. It's my daily driver. And it's a big change from the days when I used to buy two MacBooks at a time so that one could be in the shop while I was using the other one because one was always broken. And also a big change from when I used to have a ThinkPad and spend an extra $150 a year on their on-site warranty so that whenever I broke it, I could have someone show up and fix it at my house. These days, I just fix my own machine, and I am strongly tempted to buy a bag of loose parts for it and just stick them in my travel bag, my travel suitcase, so that if I break my laptop on the road, I'll have like a spare screen and a spare keyboard and can just do the swap while I'm going without any downtime at all. I haven't figured out if I'm going to do that yet, but it is a powerful possibility. I might keep the somewhat wonky damaged keyboard and screen that I've just removed and use them as like fallbacks if I'm on the road because they do work, just not as well as I'd like. And so, yeah, it's super cool. Anyway, I'm going to read to you this week one of the medium columns that I banked up and queued for publication while I was on vacation. It's called View Askew, Let's Make Amazon Into a Dumb Pipe. And it's, I think, the good form of technological exceptionalism. It's an article about how in the antitrust world, 
technology has some really distinctive and unique remedies that we don't get in other domains because technology has this flexibility, this proteanness that comes out of being built on general purpose computers that you just don't get in antitrust fights we have about, say, finance or running shoes or whatever. And I think that makes technology uniquely suited to being the first domain in which we do antitrust action because we have such a bigger and more powerful toolkit than we have elsewhere. I know that some people are skeptical of this. They say that it's a plot by the telecoms industry, cable operators, and phone companies who want to tame Google and Facebook so they can eat their lunch. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that Comcast and Charter and AT&T are delighted every time they see antitrust noises being made about tech companies. But I also think that they're making a terrible mistake because if they think we're going to like tear apart the tech companies and then go to sleep again for another 40 years of antitrust malpractice, they're super wrong. They completely misunderstand how political momentum works, how, you know, winning a victory like smashing Facebook into a bunch of little pieces or Google or Apple, how that will embolden a new movement and give it lawmakers who see careers that can be built on this kind of action and constituents who will demand more of their lawmakers. I'm really excited about this. Anyway, that's a lot of background about how this article came to be and what it's all meant to mean. But it really stands on its own. And so without further ado, here we go. View a skew. That's S-K-U, like stock keeping unit. View a skew. Let's make Amazon into a dumb pipe. It opens with two quotations. Downtrodden peasant. We should improve society somewhat. Mr. Gotcha. Yet you participate in society. Curious. I am very intelligent. Matt Bores, the nib. I like supporting local retail for shopping wherever possible, but I will not shame people for buying from Amazon the magic markers they use to write Break Up Bezos Power on a big poster they parade outside their state attorney general's office. Zephyr Teachout break them up. Here's a dirty secret of the antitrust movement. Amazon is very convenient. It's not just that they have a lot of inventory and make it easy to get things shipped to your door quickly and efficiently. It's also that their predatory pricing has finished off pretty much all of the retail that survived Walmart. Voting with your wallet is a dubious occupation at best, but it's actually counterproductive if you find yourself driving or phoning around for hours looking for local merchants to buy things from. That's stuff that you could be spending pursuing structural changes to our society's structural problems, or just relaxing with a book, so you'll have the energy to pursue those structural changes later. But what if buying local was as easy as shopping at Amazon? What if you could buy local while shopping at Amazon? I got this idea from Library Extension, a browser plugin that notices if you're looking at a book on Amazon and checks to see whether it's available for checkout at your local library. If the book is available to borrow at your local library, the extension shoves down Amazon's Add to Cart button and draws a box with buttons to reserve that title at any of the local libraries that have it on the shelf. This is basically awesome. It acknowledges that Amazon's catalog, search, recommendations, and reviews are useful to readers, and lets readers commodify all that stuff, treat it as infrastructure for discovering books to check out of their local library. 
This is possible because books have standard identifiers, the ubiquitous ISBN. It's easy for a plugin to recognize an ISBN when it sees it, and it's easy for that plugin to look up that ISBN in another database. In theory, there's no reason why this has to be limited to checking books out of your library. You could just as easily write an extension that replaces Amazon's Add to Cart button with a Buy This on Bookshop.org button. That's the cool thing about unique identifiers. They're great for cross-referencing. Why stop there? Amazon set out to become the everything store, and they've basically succeeded. Almost anything that you could care to buy has a unique identifier in Amazon's system, the ASIN code that you find on every product page and in every Amazon link. These ASINs correspond to unique identifiers, sometimes but not always represented as universal product codes, in the inventory management systems that your local merchants use. Inventory management system, like other digital businesses, is heavily concentrated, so your local retailers are probably using one of a handful of these. If a cooperative were to write modules that converted between ASINs and the inventory codes used by common inventory management systems and offer this as a plugin to common inventory management systems, then you could run a plugin that lets you shop on Amazon, but that automatically replaced the Amazon Add to Cart button with a button to order the product from one of your local merchants. There are plenty of reasons to use this beyond wanting to keep your money in your community. For example, you might need a tool right now and be looking to pick it up from a local merchant. Where I live in Burbank, California, we are blessed with a lot of great merchants, including DIY Center, a small family-owned chain of giant, amazing hardware stores. Our local DIY is the largest independent hardware store west of the Mississippi, and it's got lumber and lighting and fixtures and everything else, including a slightly surly store cat. I really love shopping at DIY Center. But sometimes when I'm pressed for time, I don't want to play Go Fish with DIY, whose inventory, vast as it is, is not infinite. If there's a specific thing I need, say a new filter for my home's HVAC, I'd much rather get it at DIY Center than Amazon, but if DIY Center doesn't have it, I'll probably end up buying it from Amazon. If DIY Center's inventory could be accessed while I browsed Amazon, I could opportunistically discover when anything I was contemplating buying from Amazon was available down the road and spend my money with a great family-owned neighborhood business. I'm saying we should convert Amazon to a dumb pipe, a back-end utility that we use to find products and services from places that aren't Amazon. For years, local merchants complained that their customers were showrooming them, wandering their shelves to make sure the thing they were about to buy on Amazon suited their needs, then whipping out their phones and buying the goods on Amazon. I'm saying we should turn Amazon into the showroom, hijack its organization, reviews, and recommendation algorithm to help us spend money locally. Is this legal? Well, I'm not a lawyer, but your web browser is yours. When you voluntarily install a plugin to change the page display, that's your business, whether it's an ad blocker, an accessibility plugin to boost the type contrast, or a tool that lets you reserve Amazon books at the library or buy widgets from your local hardware store. Amazon's ASIN database may have protection in Europe, where they unwisely adopted a database right that is an adjunct to copyright. But in the USA, factual collections of identifiers are not eligible for copyright. Amazon's terms of service 
may prohibit the creation of such a database, but courts are increasingly unwilling to limit the ability of third parties to access and process publicly identifiable data from commercial websites. This won't fix the Amazon problem, but it will fix part of the Amazon problem. Turning monopolies into dumb pipe is a time-honored tradition, the very soul of the gospel of disruption, which Amazon has preached since its earliest days. What's sauce for the goose? is sauce for the gander. All right, I will talk to you next week. Maybe I'll see some of you on Wednesday at the La Mesa Democratic Monthly General Meeting. Otherwise, I'll see you in the funny papers. Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the U.S. under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.